0: Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm joined today by Suki Fontelou, author of The Archetypal Pan in America, Hypermasculinity and Terror. The book attempts to use Jungian theory to diagnose contemporary complexes, both personal and sociological. Armed with the tools of psychoanalysis, as well as the narrative structure provided by various stories about the Greek character Pan, Fontalou attempts to offer diagnosis of a variety of psychological impasses driving us today. Suki Fontalou attended the University of Essex and Pacifica Graduate Institute and is currently a professor in the Jungian and Archetypal Studies program at Pacifica. So, Suki, welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Thank you so much.
0: So, before we dive into the book, could you maybe introduce yourself to listeners real quick and give us a sense of what your main areas of interest are?
1: Well, welcome to everyone. I'm really glad you're here for this because I, I feel so, uh, gee, passionately about uh, the state of uh, the union, of the not just the United States, but really the global union uh, that we're in uh, a real serious uh State and that the old ideas don't seem to be holding anymore. So my research in many ways has been about uh, what this book is about is lining up the problems from a a depth uh, perspective. Uh, And my future research is more into, well, how can a depth perspective help us to start to uh, make a difference and shift things? beyond just getting on the front lines of activism. What what else can we do as step psychologists?
0: All right. So to start things off, one of the key concepts for your book is Jung's theory of the complex. What were complexes for Jung and how did they develop and function in people?
1: Well, that's a great place to start because um, most people don't really know what Jung was talking about with complexes, but to Jung himself, complexes were one of the most important uh, theories that he ever came up with. He uh, actually considered and wanted to call his theory, instead of analytical psychology, complex psychology. That's, that's how central it is to uh, Jungian psychotherapy uh a complex in in jung's uh way of thinking is it's kind of like a, a ganglia a psychic ganglia in in your in your in your psyche instead of a ganglia in your body where the muscles have and nerves and and all have have uh, gotten tightened up and balled up a complex is much like that in in the psyche and in Jung's uh, way of looking at things, we all have complexes. Complexes are perfectly natural, and, but the uh, problem is that for the most part, we're unconscious of our complexes. And so uh, our complexes, as he famously said, have us, uh, that we get overtaken by them and fall into them. Uh so uh, a sign that we've fallen into a complex, which, again, don't worry about it. We all do it. It's completely natural. But the trick is just to recognize this is the place where I have to do some psychological work. Uh, but we can tell we've fallen into one because we're overreacting. We're uh, uh, 10 times more angry at our daughter for having said something than uh, is really appropriate. Uh, we feel, people say, I, I'm not myself. I, I woke up on the wrong side of bed. Uh, I just don't know what came over me. Uh, words seem to just pop out of us, uh, before we, um, we even think. And, you know, we, we, are not answering in a sober, uh, careful way when we're caught in a complex. So that's how we know we're in one. Uh, what Jung had what Jung theorized that uh, a complex is triggered often by a traumatic event, not always, but that in our childhood or uh, even uh, early adulthood, uh, events happen that trigger us, uh, that upset us and hurt us, and uh, we, we start to build up a, a, a defense against them. Uh, so, say in, in the case of uh, a serious trauma, such as uh, some sort of child abuse, uh, the, 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 there's a, a core, authentic sense of self in that child that is deeply uh, damaged by that kind of behavior, that kind of invasion and crossing of their boundaries and uh, destruction of their, their sense of naivete that they can just run around and be themselves and they they begin to develop this defensive system that protects them as a child and that system the the shell, the protection tends to be uh, be uh, created psychically out of thoughts and feelings and beliefs so uh, the child, begins to create uh, their own imaginary world that they are staying inside of, or they believe that the outside world is dangerous. It's better to stay in their play land, uh, or their fantasy world. Uh, and this builds up. And then as they get older, the same, what was protective, now it starts to get in the way of being able to create healthy relationships, go out and Fulfill their potential, be themselves, and uh, so the the what was at one point was protective has now become persecutory. Uh, yeah, that's probably enough. Do you think that <laughs> yeah. gives gives people a pretty clear idea of what a complex is?
0: Yeah, that's that's an excellent summary and introduction. Um, to move along, you. Show that complex theory has been developed not just in personal psychology, but it can also function as kind of a sociological diagnosis. Can you tell us a bit about how complexes have been expanded in this more social direction? Mm
1: -hmm. So uh, Jung came up with his complex theory early on in and uh, first published it in forty eight, but he actually came up with the theory much earlier. Then in the uh, sixties. uh he, he's now gone but he was a wonderful jungian analyst from San Francisco um henderson uh joe henderson um came up with the idea that perhaps there is a uh a a, a cultural element to the unconscious and out of that theorizing uh tom singer and sam kimbles also from the bay area two jungian analysts came up with this notion of a cultural complex around the turn of the millennium, around 2000. They, they came up with this theory and it's really caught on in only 20 years. There are many books about it. Uh, people seem to uh, like this theory. They, they So basically what they have said is that what is true for a complex is also true for groups of people. And then, what gets created is a cultural complex. And so, of course you can see this very clearly in the, uh, uh, in politics, the way that uh, these different worldviews are being created where people continually tell them each other, their, their beliefs, their thoughts and their feelings about uh, the way things should be done or what the problem is. And they constantly reinforcing each other with this shell for a, A complex, which remember at the core of the complex is a wounded sense of self. And so Singer and Thomas, uh, I mean, (laughs) Kimballs, believe that uh, that sense of self is now what is at the core of the problems that America is facing, uh, the whole world, but I'm thinking about America because you have to limit it somehow. So, they make five main points about cultural complexes, uh, which are the same five points that Jung made that a complex is a splintered off part of the psyche. It's like a little island in your psyche. You have these little islands. Uh, That that it has an inner coherence, that the ideas in a complex uh, reinforce each other, that it has autonomy over the ego. That's number three. It has autonomy. It can take over the ego. At times we lose ourselves in a complex and just say really nasty things or do nasty things. Um, it's re-triggered by traumas that happen. So, uh, you know, when there is suddenly a trauma that's facing the entire nation, uh, the complexes get reinforced And they're not necessarily negative, that um, if nothing else, complexes show us what's wrong, so then we can do something positive about them.
0: You write early in the book that both in the archetype of the Greek god Pan, as well as contemporary America, there's a sort of complex epidemic of sorts in what you call hypermasculinity. Could you unpack this term and how is it kind of a development of what you've been talking about with complexes?
1: Okay so good yeah it's good to understand what i mean by that term uh because it's not widely used uh some people have started using the term toxic masculinity which uh i i think it pretty much covers the same ideas but what we're talking about and of course you know this was one of the big problems with this topic was how to avoid uh Turning this all into being about men versus women uh, by masculine. All in Jungian theory, uh, they're, they're, we all have both traits, uh, the kind, types of traits that we call masculine or feminine. So you could certainly have a hypermasculine woman. Uh, it, it, this is a state where people are uh, fixate on themselves. There's a there's a sense of self absorption in in hypermasculinity. There's a need for power over others. Uh, So, of course, the disenfranchised are um, the most damaged, and that's not only in people. You can see this in nature and uh, uh, many areas. Uh, There's a a need to prove one's physical prowess, which has become a gigantic theme in in America of of late. You know, six-pack abs were talked about 30 years ago. Um, there's a need for excitement, uh, adrenaline rushes due to dangerous activities, which could be gambling, could be, um, you you know, X games could be, uh, risking trade wars. Um, and there's a, um, a cutoff from empathy, from compassion, from feeling for others beyond one's family. Uh, So these are the traits that define the term hypermasculine.
0: One of the social expressions of hypermasculinity is manifest destiny. How, in your view, do hypermasculinity and manifest destiny connect to Jungian complex theory, both individual and social?
1: Okay, well, that's a complicated question, but um, okay, so manifest destiny was a doctrine, uh, you know, that's a term uh that was that, that I just decided to use cuz I'm talking about America but we're basically talking about expansion of a group you know essentially a nation uh beyond its borders whether economically or uh physically um and so manifest destiny was originally considered a a a a god-given right to hold dominion over others and the the um in the united states in the um the uh, 19th century uh, manifest destiny. The idea was that what what was planned was to take over Canada, uh, the Caribbean, Mexico, all of it to become uh, the United States of America. Um, and, but today we can still see this not only in in white privilege. You can there are many colors of uh, peoples who are attempting to expand. I mean, just think of Tibet. Uh, it's basically empire building, um, either economic or military, and uh, it connects to, to this, these ideas that I'm talking about in that hypermasculinity is, is part of that, that drive to expand and uh, expansion as a cultural, is a cultural complex. It's, it's, it's overwhelming others for our sake. So uh, that's where they all connect up, and it'll be a little bit easier to bring more clarity to that in the details as we go along here.
0: Yeah, in your chapter on pan, you write that in the early twentieth century, it was thought that American America had the pan mystery, or what you call the pan mystery. However, this, in many ways, feels like the culmination of a century's long history you give of Pan where he goes from deity to daemon and then daemon to demon. Can you tell us a bit about this process and how it concludes in more recent times with Pan being associated with some sort of archetypal loss?
1: Okay. So I see Pan today as an archetype of chaos, fear, and panic. uh, Pan has uh and, and so this is why i've connected him up with the, the the this uh this idea that um we can uh we we can see a a, a cultural complex uh exploding in the united states today mm-hmm. uh, excuse me um pan uh he he, he 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 always acted uh through aggression towards the disenfranchised uh when he acted alone. W- when he acted in concert with the uh nymphs, he uh he became the opposite. He uh then became a a, a, a central figure in a harmonious uh group of pe- uh beings. Um so at first, pan was a god. the Greeks saw him as a god, even though he uh terrorized individuals and their uh, the the, the uh, sorry to be jumping around but the um there are two major groups of myths about pan there are the uh the the myths where he uh engages with the nymphs some of the ones that we remember are the ones where we think of him as raping them. Um, and then there are the battle myths where Pan is in a number of different myths where he goes to battle with different groups. Uh, and in all of these, he is an aggressive, uh, force that is a bit like a trickster. He, he does things that are unexpected and he, uh, um, is well he he's considered a god because he helped the athenians in in their battles and he was on their side so he felt that his force was with with them so they can they it, it was after the battle of marathon that he became uh really uh, deified and brought to Athens and given his own cave in Athens. Before that, he was a very minor god in Arcadia. Uh, Then as time went on and the Greek uh, religions uh, fell into disarray and were basically overwhelmed uh, to some extent by the Romans, but mostly by the Christians, uh, Pan became demonized. He became uh, equated And this is it is first written out in the Nicene Creed in three seventy five. But he became equated with uh, the devil, and the it it was uh, not in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, the devil has Pan's attributes, Uh, the the tail, the 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 hooves. The Pan and the devil were equated, so he became a devil. in between this period, when the Greeks were really trying to figure out uh, why their oracles were no longer giving the answers and why everything was falling apart, uh, Plutarch, uh, around the first century, or in the first century, uh, equated Pan with a daemon, D-A-E-M-O-N, sometimes said Daimon. Um, which was basically a guiding spirit, or kind of intermediary intermediary spirit, like a like an angel um, that communicates with the everyday world. So uh, he's he's been given many different roles over time, and uh, of course, is one of the few Greek gods that people you know every just if you went out on the street, almost everyone knows who Pan is. He's still alive in the spirit.
0: One of the main ways Pan is today remembered and thought of is in terms of his uncontrollable lust with many stories, as you alluded to, of his various relationships with nymphs usually. Pan wasn't the only one in Greek mythology thought of in this way, although when someone like Zeus is brought up, it's often in a more comedic fashion, whereas Pan's lust is thought of in much darker terms can you unpack the way in which Pan was developed as this sort of violent shadow side of sexuality?
1: Mm. Yeah. Uh, And this is actually part of another part of the reason that I chose him to, as a way to try to talk about what is at the core of this complex is because he, he is a darker figure and we're in a dark time. I think we need to recognize that, that, uh, the the best of the human spirit uh is uh is being held at bay in many ways and uh it's hard to even speak up about it so pan uh it, pan's mother was uh, a, uh a, a a nymph which uh the god hermes fell in love with and uh uh, consummated that love when, when, uh, Pan was born, he, he was born, it, it, you know, it was said he, uh, braided like a donkey and he had a beard and he, uh, he, he looked the way he looks. He was not a very, um, attractive or charismatic looking, uh, figure. His mother took one look at him and ran. So he was abandoned at birth by his mother. Uh, his father then Carried him up to Zeus, who named him Pan, which means all in uh, Greek, as well as herder, uh, but means all, and uh, and that's where the word pandemic comes from. All, uh, he uh, he he. So from the beginning, he had a problematic relationship with 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 his mother, with which uh, then. Like in a complex became a problem for him with the feminine, uh, feminine aspects as well as women. So what happened was uh that he uh then in his loneliness, uh because he lived out in the woods uh in the hills, uh outside of civilization. He is not ever seen in civilization. His um he was worshiped outside of the 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 world of man on the edges at the borderlines of uh, of the world where the herds would live uh, and out there there are three major stories of his um ch- uh, desire for different uh nymphs uh echo which is uh, is often associated with him from the from the beginning uh uh, when he chased her and he he set his dogs, because he was a hunter, he had dogs, he set his dogs on her and they ripped her up and she uh, was left in pieces. Uh, with Piteous, he and, uh, well, it's a long story, but he and pity he, with Piteous, he chased her and she prayed to uh, Gaia, who transformed her into a pine tree. And so the needles in the pine tree in the wind are always, uh, create this sad song of, of her having lost her, uh, freedom. And Syrinx, who was also a nymph, uh, prayed, also prayed to Gaia and was turned into reeds. Uh, and when Pan realized what he'd done, his sighs and cries, uh, started blowing into the reeds, and out of that the panpipe was created, the syrinx. So in none of these stories, does he actually consummate the rape, which is an interesting fact that I don't think anyone else has ever actually commented on. Uh, of course, it's still abuse. He was still uh, chasing and scaring the wits out of these people, these women or nymphs and they all devolved. They all went from uh, free-spirited states to being grounded, losing their voice, and uh, rooted or, you know, ripped to shreds. They they devolved into lesser states, and he didn't get what he wanted either. The entire stories are stories of destruction and and darkness. And uh, of course, there's the obvious cautionary tale that to just go after our desires uh, is damaging, not only for those that we destroy, but for ourselves. Well, I think that's really what I want to say is that uh, I think it's very important for us to see that uh, it's not only sexual, it is uh, being in a state of being consumed by our desires and not uh, being able to just keep them in balance. There's nothing wrong with having desires. It's being so attached to them that we must have them. That's when they become destructive.
0: Yeah, to develop what you've been talking about a little more, you connect pan in masculinity and sexuality To a story of Pan's rather troubled encounter with some nymphs, where Pan fails to properly dance in harmony with them. So they tie him up and shave his beard. You use this story to connect Pan in hyper masculine sexuality with themes such as failure and vulnerability. So, can you unpack this story a bit and how it connects some of these threads together?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, here we have, you can see that. If, it, if you're thinking of these stories as uh a, a, a like a poetic way of talking about cult about complexes then you can see that at the center of the complex is this weaken this weak sense of self that pan exemplifies and that basically even though he comes across as being really superior and you know he's the He's the top gun in Arcadia and he's to be feared that actually at the core, he's vulnerable and insecure and uh, without his beard, he feels impotent and uh, that he's lost his masculinity somehow that, and the the theme that goes through these stories is that when the feminine forces, the nymphs in these stories uh, band together, they can subdue or uh, get Pan into balance, get him to stop being uh, a force to be feared and rather someone to play with. They play with him, and this this is one of the themes that I'm moving forward into: that how violence and play are actually uh, that they're more connected than we have than we realize yet at this point. So uh, there's a way that the, the the nymphs, when they can subdue that overwhelming hyper masculinity, that it, if things become joyful, when things calm down, there's a chance for them to become joyful.
0: When turning to American history, you turn to the Puritans as a way of understanding the origins of a variety of, more particularly, American complexes. The Puritans were in a complicated place politically, given that they were fleeing religious persecution. But they could also be rather harsh, not only to themselves, but to the indigenous American populations they'd soon find themselves surrounded by. What exactly was the series of complexes the Puritans developed, and how did it set the stage for the absolutely horrific treatment of indigenous populations that would follow?
1: Uh, okay, so uh, the Puritans e- e- were definitely uh, one of the groups. Of course, there were a number of groups that uh, came over and were um, early founders of what's now the United States of America. Um, but they kind of held sway. Uh, the Puritan ideas are what stuck, uh, whereas the the other uh, other uh, refugees, such as the the Dutch, uh, are those their their religious ideas have not really become, permeated the American psyche the way the Puritans have. Um, they the, the central Puritan idea that has really stayed with us is that. By adhering to strict beliefs and using wealth for the common good, uh, one gets to go to heaven. One is part of the chosen people, and uh, although they didn't call this exceptionalism, uh, it, it was coined as exceptionalism, as everyone knows, by de Tocqueville just a little bit later. Um, and uh, these these ideas that it that wealth. Uh, brings you closer to God and that by adhering to, uh, to these Christian beliefs uh, brings you closer to God. Uh, I, I think that they both are at the center of a complex that was formed um, in, in this country at the birth of, of the nation. Uh, The, the, the the if some some of the just just as a refresher for people because when we think of Puritans, mostly we just think about prudery that that's the puritans uh were definitely not uh you know adultery or anything like that was out of the question uh but they are also the 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 group that uh put on the Salem witch trials uh and uh they tortured and imprisoned people and banished their own for very small uh infractions uh and you can still see this kind of uh inflated and confused thinking in pruder in, in a lot of different kind of ways that this whole idea of uh that the the right way to be a good person is to not have sex before marriage say and the fascination with pornography that is very similar to the way people would tell these stories about the witches with the devil and all of the this this kind of wild sex that they make up that they all had uh and then of course tireless work workaholism uh, is is another vein of uh puritan that has permeated our culture in, in ways today. I'm not sure, did I
0: answer your question there? Yeah, I think that's kind of sets us up to move forward. You turn from the Puritans to the 20th century. The middle of the century, roughly from 1945 through the end of the 60s, is generally considered to have been a sort of golden age for America. But in the 1970s, a combination of economic stagnation, as well as various minority groups asserting themselves into the public sphere and making certain social and political gains triggered the complex by calling a shaky sense of identity into question. What exactly was going on in the white, cisgendered, heterosexual male psyche at the time? And how has it responded in recent decades to these challenges and assertions?
1: You know, I realized what I left out was talking about the indigenous people, which isn't that just perfect.
0: <laughs> uh, we we can go back if you want. Yeah.
1: yeah, I I do want to say something about that because uh that was really although by the time the uh the uh Indian Wars began in the 1800s, the uh the the for the most part the puritans who were uh extremely um uh uh, cruel to the Native Americans in the area where they lived. But the Puritan religion died out in the 1730s. Uh, and uh, But those ideas of that we have a right to this land, that because we are closer to God, we have the right to uh, do what we want to other human beings, grew out of those Puritan um, uh, faulty beliefs. And uh, the key here is for us to see how this still permeates uh, the reality of the dominant culture. And uh, of course we, we hear about this a lot, but uh, it, it, it really can't be said enough. So anyway, that's what I just wanted to add there. Um, But uh, so as far as the, yeah, we went through a, a, a kind of a golden age. I mean, really, America had a golden age from the beginning up until uh, somewhere in the, the uh, I I like to think of the moon uh, landing as w- when we hit the peak. Uh, but it, it was an upward trajectory from the beginning. Everything went our way. All these resources, the, the country just had everything it needed for uh a really long time wealth was easy to come by in this country even in my childhood uh but starting in with uh everything that happened in the 60s with uh and the 70s losing vietnam the race riots women's lib gay rights the oil embargo goes on and on things started uh Started going badly for us. Somehow the answers weren't just forthcoming. We didn't just, you know, the way World War II. We just we went into the war at exactly the right moment to be the overwhelming force. Europe was on its knees, and we came in with the Marshall Plan and lifted them up. We created incredibly strong uh, allies out of all of that that carried us, and then all of the great ideas that come out of American uh, just creativity and belief that it's it's okay to go your own way so that people came up with big cars with fins that use lots of gas and iPhones and endless inventions that have made the world what it is today but at the same time this this trajectory started to lose finally lose its uh its momentum and uh instead this uh, these these ins- unsolvable problems started happening, and I would say that this is when the complex, which was latent for all of those years, these these faulty ideas that Americans were exceptional and that we have a destiny that's made up for us already to do things to keep you know this empire building that even Bush was into, uh, that uh, th- this. This it lost its momentum, and we began to have this situation where the complex was triggered, and these groups started building up of belief systems of that we should be for all. We're the United States. We should we should be thinking of everyone on the one hand, and on the other, uh, we can do whatever we want. We're we're great. We, we we know what we're doing. Everyone should listen to us because we're always right. But America is not exceptional, and Americans are not exceptional, except in the sense that we're all exceptional. Uh, it, this, this is an inflated idea, and it, it, it is now that it's it's sort of been exposed by all these problems, it's become defensive. It it it, it it's become defensive that now the um, the dominant culture uh, is now that it's triggered. It's confused. It wants to run away from problems, to be saying problems really don't matter, uh, that they they'll, they'll go away. Don't panic. Um, but, you know, you don't say panic. Don't panic unless people are already panicking and people are panicking because they can tell the i. The answers are not; they they're not they they're not really addressing the problems. They're not big enough answers for such big problems, and so this is the state we find ourselves in, because we're in an unconscious complex that's exploding on us. In my opinion.
0: Yeah. So we've been kind of laying out some broad brush, both frameworks and history. But from here, you turn to some more specific events. You first turn to the Columbine shootings. With all the theoretical frameworks we've been laying out, can you unpack the complexes that were being developed in both the two boys in particular, and in their community at large, and how their actions were an expression of and reaction to these dynamics? Uh, I'll try
1: Uh, okay. So Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold were, uh, grew up in, uh, Colorado outside of Denver in, uh, the, the, the part of Colorado that's East of the Rockies that, uh, is, it's a beautiful part of the country. Uh, you know, Columbines are beautiful flowers, uh, that is, uh, for the most part, um, is and has been for quite a while in a very comfortable economic boom uh, that's based on the, the, all of the work done by the military complex there. So there's, there's a, a, um, a high standard of living, uh, very uh, sort of upper middle class uh, lifestyle uh, and predominantly white culture. Uh, it's also, uh, uh, very highly influenced by the, uh, Western cowboy culture. Uh, the, so, uh, has some of the attributes that we, uh, can think of as American individualism and all that to uh, a high degree. So they're, they grow up in this culture and neither of them are the kind of boys that stand out in high school. Uh. Neither of them are, especially because they're lacking, uh, both of them were not particularly strong or athletic and athletics, as we'll see really, um, and still to a great extent in this country, uh, rules uh, on the high school level that if you, if everyone wants their high school to win the regionals and the state contests and all of that, and Columbine did quite a bit. And the the high school boys kind of ruled the halls at Columbine. Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold were outsiders. They were, uh, considered to be part of a cult, which wasn't really true, but they were, uh, basically the rejects, the friendless guys. And they were bullied to a great extent, uh, through their middle school years and high school years. Um, there's tons of evidence for this because, uh, First of all, after Columbine, there were many books written, a great deal of interviews were done, uh, but also the boys themselves left what they called the basement tapes and their journals. They left a very large amount of documentation of uh, how they were feeling, what they were thinking and what they planned to do, which they planned out in military style down to the uh, nth degree. Uh, Dylan was an alcoholic at, even at his age. Uh, that's pretty well documented. And Eric was a uh, misogynist, really hated women uh, and uh, died a virgin. Um, their bullying was ignored by the um, administration um, and their parents. You know, they were just basically thought that they were weak and should toughen up. Uh, there is, and There are a number of there's reports of number of times when uh, teachers watched while the uh, high school boys would bully them, the high school um, football team, especially. Uh, And uh, they were uh, really, really angry uh, and uh, felt also very hopeless and decided their lives had no, no future. They both felt they had no future. And, um, uh, they their re, their desire to get back uh, at at the world uh, went beyond the bullies. They actually didn't target the bullies. They they randomly shot uh, just a you know bunch of everyday kids, different kinds of kids: some Christians, some uh, born again Christians, some uh, you know just all different kinds of kids, um, and uh, they uh actually their plan had been to blow up the school they had uh they the 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 uh the the system didn't work but they put these bombs in place in the cafeteria that were supposed to blow up the whole thing they wanted to kill everyone so what was going on here they they were ignored children they certainly weren't the first children to be ignored in the world but they uh this in my opinion, this complex had, had grown up that they were infused by this uh, need to uh, the, 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 their own sensitivity, which both of them, they both, uh, especially Dylan, wrote poetry. And Eric uh, was a very, he was brilliant. He, he high very high intelligence, but their, their sensitivity was, uh, had to be completely, uh hidden and uh they became uh self absorbed with their um their their feelings of uh having been uh wronged and they uh n- needed to make a show of power and and had really no empathy for those that they were going to hurt so the uh scapegoated became the bully and the the so this this is what happened uh, to them. The uh, school district continued to uh, deny the truth of the situation, and the uh, media, for the most part, uh, focused on the boys as uh, the instigators and bad seeds rather than seeing a systemic problem that began with the school district being unwilling to see anything but that the the school was great because it was winning all of the you know region that's the content that the football uh, all the different games that um, that are so popular and uh, they didn't address the problem. Uh, the ongoing problem of scapegoating at the school, which reports show that after a short amount of time, the school reverted to. So I see this as a microcosm of what uh, was beginning to explode in the culture. This uh, problem of, on one hand, this naivete that somehow these problems are going to go away or that boys will be boys or, you know, uh, not to worry about it. I mean, Dylan and Eric were making movies about doing this in their homes with their mothers watching and n- no one picked up on it. No one realized what was going on. Their rooms were full of guns and everything else. And it's all recorded. And they became, they're like number one, the the, the first one in an epidemic that has gradually uh, continued to expand of school and random shootings across the country and the world. They are worshipped by many on the Internet. And uh, since they left this trail behind, they uh, became the leaders in a movement to of, of dark, destructive uh, energy, which clearly needs uh to be it, it, the feminine has been destroyed in this the, the feminine meaning the caring culture that that turns around and thoughtfully considers why would these boys do this uh what where have we failed them so uh that's how this fits in with the theme uh, that I'm try, trying to drive home here
0: Right. Moving forward to the terrorist attacks on 9 11, you argue that our responses to the attacks, both in terms of our military aggression and curbing of civil rights, as well as our turning towards consumerism as a sort of distraction from it, were ways of failing or refusing to participate in earnest reflection about ourselves as Americans. Can you unpack our response and how it shows us developing? in response to our complexes?
1: Well, I, yes, I, I, I again, feel that, uh, these recurring themes in America of panicking right after nine 11, there was, you know, shock and panic. Uh, how could this happen? Uh, and then this naivete, like, well, we'll just leave it to the experts. Uh, this is not a good idea with something like this. Um, this complacency in Americans, uh, I, I think, is understandable because America has had it really easy uh, compared to other cultures. If, if you think about it, I mean, even I mean, think of Great Britain in World War II; they were bombed. Uh, the Blitz went on daily. I mean, and these are people who now we kind of think they're the most like us. But uh, we've never been through anything like that. The closest we ever came was the Civil War. And that was so long ago. Uh, there's a complacency in the United States. And uh, and then this kind of sudden shock and fear when things go wrong. Uh, but uh, after 9-11... And rather than after after the, 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 the shock and the fear was over, rather than awakening as a culture, starting to say, well, what do we need to do? Why do these people hate us so much? Or, I mean, I remember the president saying that, but we never did a thing about it. Instead, we defended ourselves, which obviously there are times when you have to defend yourself. But the country basically became more anxious and never returned to the pre 9 11 levels of uh, relaxation as a culture that this is uh, there's plenty of documentation for that. Uh, and we, we also never really faced the reality that actually we're not that different than the jihadists and the terrorists. We, uh, do things that are just like them. We just uh, ignore it for the most part. There's, you know, it's, there's plenty of documentation, but uh, the major media and the, certainly the powers that be um, keep, just don't talk about it much. So what does get talked about are other issues that get talked about ad nauseum. but uh, the government, when, when 9-11 happened uh, was the Bush administration already had a plan in place for once something like this happened to expand our economic borders with using a multi-pronged war. That, that was the plan. And, uh, this, our desire to uh, economically take over the world is not that different than what China is actually doing more successfully at the moment And the jihadists are very similar with their fanatical ideas of taking over the world. I'll actually never forget one time being in London on a bus and this uh, group of people right out uh, in front of parliament with uh, all wearing black, men and women all wearing jet black with red and yellow signs chanting, uh, Islam will take over the world. Islam will take over the world. Uh, it was, this was probably 10 years ago and, uh, it, it, it really woke me up to that. There are, there are people who, uh, you know, that, that this, this is a, this is a drive. This is that the, the negative side of the pan drive to just take over and just get what you want that needs to be recognized that it's, it isn't just American. It isn't just the terrorists it isn't just the Chinese. It's a drive. It's part of human nature. And we have to learn how to uh, mitigate this within ourselves. So, uh, you know, I could say a lot more about that. I hope people remember that the Patriot Act is what grew within a hundred days. Bush pushed that through after 9-11. And that is why you have to, spend so long on the phone. Well, it's just on a million b- different things. But, you know, the way our privacy is supposedly being uh, protected for us is just ridiculous. It's just absurd. It's a huge red herring.
0: Mm. In the final chapter, you turn towards the issue of sexual assault in the military. The epidemic seems to come from both a certain understanding of hypermasculinity that we're afraid to address, as well as a failure of empathy for the victims, usually women. How does complex theory help us understand the issue as well as our failures to address it?
1: Right. Well, I, I really wanted to include this because it... it is an example of the way uh, that hypermasculinity is so destructive to the disenfranchised. That if we can start to recognize the hypermasculinity in ourselves, that that we will all begin to have this ripple effect. I know that sounds a little naive in itself, but uh, just remember Gandhi: we can change the world by changing ourselves, and. Uh, that the, the, this is an issue that's like a non-issue every once in a while when there's not much in the news, it'll get mentioned, but for the most part, nothing ever changes. Obama didn't change it. Uh, and Trump, I mean, you know, he, he just, he, he's not going to change it. Um, okay. Listen to this in, in the general population Uh, Rape occurs, and of course, it's not only women, men are raped too, but um, the majority are women. Um, About uh, 0.2% of the civilian population, rapes are reported annually. Uh, In the uh, military, one out of three women can expect to be assaulted or raped in the military. That's how prevalent it is. One out of three, that's 33% instead of 0.2%. So uh, this is a huge problem. And the, it, why is it like this? Because it's a closed system and it's the good old boy network. The commanders have absolute power. Uh, say a man or woman is raped and they go to their, um, the, they do what they're supposed to do and go to their commander. Uh, the commander, if they will, if they believe them, they then appoint a, the defense, the prosecute, the, the defense, the prosecution and the investigators. If they, if, if they, if it goes to trial, and the the person who was raped or alleges rape is is found to be uh, um, wrong, and, and that the rapist is found not guilty. The alleged rapist is found not guilty. Sixty percent of them are uh, of of the the people who spoke up are then uh, charged with adultery, and uh, uh, either have a loss of rank or are discharged from the military and the number of convictions. Okay. In 2010, only 300 cases were tried and uh, only 175 were convicted. So uh, this is a terrible problem for the people that it happens to. And um, it's, I see it as being part of the same purview because of course, Pan is uh, known to explode into action out of his desire, and the chase and the hunt are two of his major areas of, uh, of action in his stories. And that this is the way this hyper drive works in us, that it, when unchecked, it just explodes into aggression, especially towards those that are different than ourselves. This is a s- systemic problem that's reinforced by beliefs and ideas like she was asking for it and all of that. And uh, I wanted to write about this because, uh, you know, this is only one of hundreds and hundreds of problems where uh, the disenfranchised are s- stepped on and, and ignored by the this hyper-masculine dominant uh, culture that we're in. Uh, but, I, you know, I just I just wanted one area to hear that some of us are listening and that there are reasons for hope because we can change. We can change into a less naive and less aggressive culture. It's not out of the question.
0: Yeah. As a final question, we always ask our guests what they're working on now. And you alluded to this at the beginning um, this book seems to have been more kind of diagnostic, but obviously given your union therapeutic background, uh, do you have anything you're working on now for thinking about how we can kind of start addressing this head on and trying to maybe move past it?
1: Okay. So these are really early ideas and um, n- not fully formed. Uh, but it, what, what, what this grew out of was, uh, looking at Pan in late antiquity, which, um, means kind of, uh, around uh, late antiquity is thought to have ended around, uh, 500, uh, uh, BCE. So, uh, uh, I mean, CE 500 in the common era, common era, SARS, So, you know, 500 AD as we used to call, it. uh, that a lot of, uh, statuary was found in caves, um, uh, that around that period, uh, the, uh, their statuary of Pan and the nymphs uh, in, uh, dancing together with Pan in the middle and uh, then spokes going out from Pan to uh, about a dozen nymphs uh, who also have like a wheel that's uh, connecting all of them. And they're dancing in the circle when he's playing his uh, flute in the center. And, uh, I recognized this as a mandala and I, uh, then started doing a lot of research into, uh, the, you know, why, why do, uh, Tibetan Buddhists use mandalas as a uh, meditation, uh, focus and what does this mean about our inner selves? And, uh, so I'm. I'm moving in that direction to see where the ideas, because I, I'm, I'm pretty big on the idea that uh, transformation happens one person at a time and that we do influence each other uh, constantly, even in what to buy in the grocery store, uh, we're constantly influencing and uh, that we perhaps Perhaps, you know, this darkness is not the end of the story and that uh, out of this, uh, some, some new, new will begin, new will grow.
0: Well, thank you so much for being with us.
1: You're very welcome. I, I really enjoyed this. Thanks so much.